Work is no longer just about productivity and metrics. It's about people. And when we focus on positivity, communication, belonging, and development, the numbers take care of themselves. This is Work Human Radio, where we talk to authors, researchers, and business leaders about the latest trends making work more human around the world. Here's your host, Mike Wood. So welcome back to another Work Human Radio. My name is Mike Wood. I am your host, and I'm talking to one of my favorite people in the world today, Rhonda Taylor. Hi, Rhonda. How are you? Hey, Mike. How are you doing? So Rhonda and I have been around the block at the HR conference circuit. We've known each other for probably about four years now because my daughter's four and you sent me into a wonderful quilt when she was born. But what I didn't know is your background in kind of fighting for gender equality in sports. I had no idea about that until probably a couple of years ago. Well, first of all, can you introduce to people like who you are, where you work, what your title is, and then we can go from there. Okay. Thanks, Mike. I am the Director of Partnerships for Feel 50, a company down in New Zealand. It deals with career pathing and talent management. I live in the Toronto area, and I am passionate about women moving forward, whether it's in sports or in the business community. So, Mike, last year, I, with my great niece, wrote a book about my experiences in the development of the women's hockey program. And it was the program in Canada, but you have to realize that we're talking oh, 30, 40 years ago, <laughs> that Canada was the leader in the evolution of the women's game. So the book is called Offsides, and you can find it probably everywhere, Amazon, whatever. But Tell me about your kind of start in hockey. What drew you to hockey and kind of the development of the women's program? Yeah, well, when I wrote the book, it was so easy because I have my HR background and then I have my hockey background. So when I wrote my book, I wrote it in parallel in the development of women's ice hockey, along with the women's movement. When I started playing hockey Back in the 80s, that's probably before you were born, Mike. I was born in 82. (laughs) I started playing the game, and at that time, it was the man's game. And I played, and as I went through high school, I got teased because I played hockey. I was given nicknames. I played university hockey, which was great. But still, there was a certain stigma around the university that you played hockey and it was not totally acceptable like it is today. Like, wow, if you go to university and you're on the women's hockey team, you are quote unquote an elite athlete and rightly so. And then I was lucky enough to get hired and I was the first person ever in the world to be working in a women's development program. Actually, this is where my book offside I just had battle after battle after battle, Mike. And it's so funny now that I am in career pathing because back then I knew what I wanted in place for the women's hockey. I knew that there had to be a national program. And if we had a national program, the U.S. would get a national program and other countries would get one. And then would come the evolution of the Olympics, which I'm just so proud of. But We had to fight for things. We had to fight for ice time down at the rink level. We had to fight at the national hockey level. I sat there as a 
board member, but I didn't have the vote. And like you go back and you take a look at HR for years, they sat at the executive level, but they never had a voice. And I turned around in the women's hockey program and I said, hey, I just don't want to sit here. I want to vote. And when I asked for a vote, my goodness, there was a total uprising. How dare the women's program be given a vote that could nullify a male hockey program? So that's where my story comes from, Mike, the fighting and making the opportunity there for women to play the game. I think one of my goals was not only to have the game recognized at the national level, but also have the game to a level of respectability. So in my lifetime, I saw it going from being a male-dominated game to today, which in Canada and the United States, the women's hockey program is growing more than the male hockey program. The Hmm. male hockey program is losing people, losing players to basketball and soccer and games that are somewhat, you know, relatively cheaper to play. So it's amazing now that the women's hockey program is really driving hockey at the national level because of the growth that it's experiencing. Did I answer your question, Mike? Yeah, you you did. You did. And actually, like, so I just did a series for Black History Month. And one of the things I noticed this common theme of you need to be seen, you need to be heard. And it's that struggle to have a voice and be recognized. And so, I mean, for the women, just to get that visibility out there to be able to be seen as equals, it's that same struggle. Oh, it definitely is. It's getting equal airtime. It's getting equal pay. I don't know if you remember in the LPGA, but that little young lady with the last name of Wu, I think she golfed like, I forget, three rounds with absolutely no bogeys. And she won like $390,000. That (laughs) same weekend, there was a FedEx being played and Rory won, and he won something like $6 million. And the 10th place player won 400000 So even the woman that played a flawless game, and believe me, Rory did not play a flawless game. He rarely does. <laughs> yeah. The best golfer, technique-wise and skill-wise, was the young lady. And yet she managed to only be paid what the 10th place FedEx player was paid. So that's real inequality. And what we're witnessing now with the U.S. soccer team and we're seeing the evolution of the pro women's hockey program coming. This is so exciting, Mike, because we're on the cusp of a revolution in women's sports. And for me, it's a dream come true. Yeah. So I'm a big golf fan. Uh, My dad is, too. And what he primarily watches now is the LPGA because he finds it a little bit more exciting and it's on more often, actually, some of these smaller things. I think it's just getting that exposure, getting out there. If you've ever been to an LPGA event or whatever, you've watched these women play, they are good. You need to get there and see it for yourself instead of trying to judge it as, and it shouldn't be judged as one versus the other. I don't know if you remember Annika Sornstam a couple of years ago played against Tiger in a match made for TV, Mm -hmm. but like there needs to be kind of more of that, more of showing that it is equal 
And it's an uphill battle because everything's set up with the men for so long that some of these other leagues like the WNBA, baseball doesn't have a women's league. There's softball and stuff. So it's everything is growing. Can you tell me a little bit about the women's hockey program in Canada and kind of when it got started and when did it sort of take off? Well, it was actually the women's hockey program globally was around before the war. It was like the program called the League of Their Own. I think Madonna of was Of course, there's no baseball. crying in baseball. Exactly. But hockey was very similar. It, the hockey program back then was male-driven. And I'm sure that the girls, when they went to talk to the media, if they didn't have their lipstick on, like in the League of Their Own, they were penalized. So, unfortunately, when the war started, that program dwindled aside as everybody hunkered down, went to war, and the women actually went into the workforce. Then, late 70s, early 80s, we saw the evolution of things like women's sports coming along. And this is where I saw women's ice hockey. I joined as a young player, but like, like we had to drive miles to find competition. There was no local competition. It was, and, and on our team, we had like women that were 22, 23 years old, and we had children, not children, but we had young girls that were like 12, 10. Mm-hmm. There was a real widespread of women who just loved the game. So that's why checking was taken out of the game because intentional checking was taken out just to make the game more attractive to the younger players who might have been somewhat afraid to come on the ice because there were bigger players on their team. Yeah, if you're 12, you don't want to get checked into the boards. Exactly, exactly. And then when I was hired, one of the things that we felt for respectability was to create a women's national event. So, Mike, like, here I am. I have a board of directors and an association. And I'll tell you, the association might have had $3,000 in their bank account. And we're saying, we're going to do the Nationals. So we're bringing in teams from all across Canada to play hockey. So where did we decide to take it? We decided Brantford, the home of Wayne Gretzky. We had Wayne Gretzky's mother drop the first puck. And it was close to the airport. We People flew into Toronto and we bussed them to Brantford. But I had a whole team of volunteers below me. But the executive decisions all fell on my shoulders. And when we went to write this book, I just had a whole box of memories, whether they were crests, whether they were letters, articles, anything referring to the evolution of the game that I was involved in. And Gendy went through it and sort of put everything in, oh, this would be chapter one. Then we we pulled it together. And one of the things Gendy found was that I was 27, 28 at the time of the first national. I signed a million-dollar liability insurance claim to pull off the nationals. And, Mike, that's passion. I knew, you know what, I didn't have it. I had my car. I had a rented apartment. That was it. But I was so passionate for the game, I was willing to take that risk. What would it mean? I have to start all over again, claim bankruptcy, start all over again. That's how committed I was to the cause. So we had to do all these things. We went around and knocked on doors and got sponsors and we got Spark Canada involved. 
and reluctantly, Sport Canada turned around, and it's the same thing in the United States, and told male hockey, here's a women's program, and you better accept them. Back in the 1980s, and the male hockey program was saying, we're running as fast as we can, as hard as we can. We don't need another program coming under our direction. And the sport governing bodies at the national level said, if you want funding from us, you're going to take on the girls. So the girls were handed over to the male program, but we did not have the warmest reception. <laughs> no. Not the war- <laughs> No, people in power usually don't like competition. And they don't like change. And they don't like change. So as a result, we pulled this national boss. We came in on budget. We didn't lose any money. And it was set up. In my book, I say that this was the event that literally was the first time women's hockey was on national TV, like as a sport, just not something, a fun thing at a winter carnival. It actually was on a wide world of sports here. And it was on all the national newspapers. So this was the first time that women's hockey was totally, totally acceptable. And it was probably one of my proudest moments was to see that program. And during it, Murray Costello came over to me and he congratulated me. And he said, we really now have to seriously look at the women's hockey program because he knew the passion that not just myself, but all the other players and provinces and volunteers, he realized that this movement was not going to crawl under a rock and go away. It was a movement that was gaining momentum. And like in my book, I say to the younger players, I had my challenges. I kept my shoulder to the wheel. Now I pass the torch to you. Your challenges are going to be different, but the battle has not yet been won. That's great. So if people want to find out more about your work and get the Offsides book, where can they go? They can go to my website. I have my website, Rhonda Lehman Taylor. I did it because my hockey world was all in my single days. Or they can just Google Offside. We've got lots of great coverage, lots of great publicity around the book. Well, thank you very much for joining me, Rhonda. I hope to see you around the HR circuit. Uh, We will for sure, Mike. Take care. (laughs) All right. Thanks. If you want to see business leaders, culture keepers, and industry experts come together to share the latest research and ideas for making work more human, you need to be at Work Human Live in 2020, May 11th through the 14th in San Antonio. Visit workhuman.com to see the full lineup of speakers and reserve your spot in the number one conference of 2020. 